Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Phoenix Bible Church. My name is Brad. I'm one of the elders here. And again, just want to welcome you if you're new or if this is your first time. Uh, it's just exciting to uh, be together worshiping this morning. And uh, what an exciting morning we have. We want to thank Ben. Uh, ben is leading us in worship uh, this morning. Um, ben is leading us in worship this morning. We have a couple things going on. Kyle and his wife Layla and their kids, they are out this week. Layla had surgery. Uh, she had a foot surgery or leg surgery this week, and so be praying for them. She's got a long road to recovery and, and uh, rehabilitation there, and so be praying for them. So Kyle is at home doing all of it, uh, so be praying for him. Um, and, uh, and so we're just thankful for them and thankful for Ben for, for uh, leading us in worship this morning. And also, Tim uh, is at our partner church, our sister church, Desert Springs Bible Church this morning, uh, preaching there, multiple services. And so today, we are honored to have a guest speaker, Don Wooster, with us. Uh, we're excited to have him. Don and his wife, Renee, lead a counseling ministry called Life Together, uh, specifically focusing on marriage and relationships. And so it's only fitting to have him here to continue us in our sermon series called What is Love? And today, specifically, we're talking about love and singleness. And so would you guys give Don a warm PBC welcome as he comes up and brings God's word to us? Well, good morning. Um, hey, it's fun to be here. Um, Tim told me that he was going to be preaching in another church, um, Desert Springs, which is about 60 seconds from my house. Um, so uh, we kind of did some strange flip-flop, um, which seems great to me. This is a really cool space. Like, do you guys know that this is a cool space? Like a lot of churches feel kind of churchy. And I don't know, I would come here and drink coffee or hang out and play cards. I didn't do anything. This is really a cool space. So, um, and I'm really excited to be here with you this morning. What a great series too. I've been uh, gone online and looked at what Tim's been laying out. And uh, man, I can't think about anything more essential than figuring out this whole uh, love piece. Um, what are we gonna do with that? One of my favorite quotes um, goes like this. Uh, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. That's from Billy, age four. <laughs> when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth, right? There's something different when someone loves us. There's a safety that is just present. Um, and love is that invitation that sort of brings us into that. And um, so I'm excited uh, to talk to you about that this morning. Um, uh, I have an amazing wife, Renee. Uh, she's not here this morning. She had another commitment. Um, we have four kiddos. Um, uh, we have a 27-year-old and a 21-year-old, or two boys. We started off with, like, testosterone and rocket ships and guns and sports. And if you have, if you have boys, you have excuses to do all kinds of things, um, which I so appreciated um, doing that. And then we have uh, two girls also that we kept going with. And so we have a 20-year-old and almost 17-year-old. Um, and so we've got four kiddos, two of them over at GCU. My second son and my oldest daughter are 
finishing, my son's finishing his last semester and my daughter is in her second year at GCU, so lopes up. Um, and uh, they're fun, um, they're fun kiddos. Um, when I was thinking about this whole relationship thing, because relationships uh, and single, all of our kids are single right now, um, and that's good. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Um, thankful for that. And, uh, but I was thinking about um, when Emma, who's a sophomore over at GCU, when Emma was five, we had one of these early relational events with her. She was in kindergarten. And um, at the school that she went to, they had a little protocol where the girls sat on one side, kind of like this. This would be the girls' side, and they sat on their lunch tables. And this would be the boys' side, and they sat on their lunch tables. And that was the standard protocol. And there's this little boy, Ryan, who kind of developed a little bit of a crush on my daughter, this little kindergartner boy. And um, so one day, Ryan is sitting kind of on, this, on the correct side with the other boys, um, and Ryan does this really gutsy thing is that he stands up with his Spider-Man lunchbox and he crosses the great divide <laughs> and he goes over and sits right next to my daughter, Emma, on the end of the table. Major protocol violation, right? I mean, people are kind of noticing what's Ryan doing with his Spider-Man lunchbox thing, right? And so then he stands there and he kind of nervously with his lunchbox, he looks at my daughter and he looks away. And he gets that nervous, flushed feeling that all guys get when they're next to cute girls and they're trying to think of something amazing to say. That never changes, by the way. Um, but Ryan in this flustered goes, and then he just burst out, like out of his bowels. He goes, I love Emma! Just kind of comes pouring out, right? Through the lunchroom. Dead silence in the lunchroom. All of the girls scream like it's the bachelorette or something, you know, and he just, she got a rose or something, I don't know. And the guys are groaning like, oh man, down, Ryan, what are you, right? There's just pandemonium. So lunch ladies have to come in, sort it all out. You know, I get the report when I get home, my wife tells me, she goes, well, there's a little incident today. I go, okay, well, I'll, I'll just check in with Emma. So I sat down with them after and I go, Emma, I go, hey, so I heard about the lunchroom today. And she goes, yeah, yeah, dad. She goes, we worked it out. We're just going to be friends. <laughs> Thumbs up. Good. Glad to know. That's good. That's good. I go, but Emma, you know, someday there may be a guy who really is interested in you. And I go, just so you'll know, like if somebody wants to be with you, they have to love you more than anything else. Just remember that. They gotta love you more than anything else if they really wanna be with you. And then she goes, you know, actually, Dad, I think they need to love Jesus a little bit more than me. Right? Right, Dad? I was testing you. Yes! <laughs> yes! That's right. They need to love Jesus just a little bit more than you. And here's what was uh, for me that you know, in that little moment, my five-year-old little girl who kind of understood in this really simple but essential way, you know, if someone loves Christ a little bit more than you, if the person you're with or around loves Christ more than you, that's going to be a good and a safe relationship, right? As much as we maybe want to be the person, as much as we want to be the center, as much as we want to be adored or acclaimed, 
you kind of go, the best relationship is always gonna happen when the person you're with loves Christ a little bit more than you. That'll be a life-giving relationship. And, um, and I think that was true when she was five. I think it's true now that she's 20. Um, it's still a desire of hers, which makes me very happy. Um, but I wanna pray for us. And then let's take a look at this verse in 1 Corinthians, and we'll take a look at this idea of the gift of, of singleness. Let me pray. So Jesus, could you open up your word? Could you open up our hearts? Could you get your word into our hearts and into our lives? Uh, God, could you get this very good and old truth into new places in us? We can't do it without you, Lord. So um, would, you, would you release something this morning or would you help us receive it? We pray in your name. Amen. Um, so uh, the verse that we, uh, we're looking at this morning, and we're just going to take a little bit of time to unpack it, uh, and I'll read it for you. Um, on this topic of love and singleness uh, from uh, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 7 and 8. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Uh, that's Paul writing uh, to the church in Corinth. And um, I thought we could look at this together and unpack a couple of things, um, maybe three things that we might as we take a look at this. Number one, um, what, is it, what is a gift? Like in terms of just looking at this verse, what does it mean that it's a, a gift? And to talk, just spend a few minutes in talking about what makes something a gift. Um, second, Paul says that he calls remaining single a good. He said it's good to remain single. And so we want to talk about what's the good that God's put in singleness. Um, and then the third question is, has to do with this idea of, of, are we supposed to be content or are we just supposed to be obedient? What, what's our expectation around that? Um, and then we'll wrap up with the, this idea. Is there a secret to this? Is there something, uh, is there a posture and understanding that we want to have that kind of can hold these things together? Um, so we want to start with this idea of what makes something a gift. Um, the word that uh, Paul uses there, um, but each one has his own gift from God. Um, the word that he uses there is the word charisma. Uh, and it's a different word than the word ability. A gift is not an ability. Um, an ability is something that you learn. An ability is something that you develop. An ability is something that you practice and you take, natural, you take natural skills and abilities and you develop them. Uh, if your kids are playing sports or music or something else, they're probably practicing and they're developing their ability. Uh, but the word gift is not the word ability. Um, the word charisma is also not the word responsibility. Um, sometimes it's your responsibility or my responsibility to do things that are assigned to us. Uh, that's a job. And you kind of go, you know what? I've got a job to do. I have a responsibility. And, you know, if we're going to have productive, healthy lives, we should embrace responsibilities. But our responsibilities, again, um, are something different than a gift. Um, the responsibilities are, are, are things that we accept and we commit to and we work out and we show up and we do them. 
Um, and some parts of our lives are about developing our abilities and some parts are about saying yes to our responsibilities. But Paul here talks about this gift um, that God releases into us. And the word uh, charisma is this idea that it's beyond us. It's something that gets deposited in us that's not from us. It's, it's put in us. It's a favor. Um, Lauren gave me this cool love move swag bag when I came in this morning. She goes, hey, I have a gift for you. Um, and it was this cool swag bag with a little cup in it. I go, I love that. I love, who loves gifts like freebies? Come on, the rest of you are not being honest. It's okay. <laughs> yes, you love free stuff to go, wow, I have a gift for you, right? Um, now, sometimes if a salesperson calls on the phone, some rotary thing and says, hey, congratulations, I have a gift for you. I hang up. <laughs> I just hang up. I go, you know what? Whatever your gift is, no, thank you. I know it ends with me going to some timeshare condo somewhere and spending a lot more. I mean, no, I, I don't think that's really a gift. I think that's, you know, you're tempting me in. You're going you're gonna to switch. But this idea of gift, which is what Paul says uh, when he talks about in this context, this gift of singleness, he goes, it really is a gift. It's this deposit that God puts in us. Um, I work as a consultant and a therapist, and one of the things that people ask a lot of times is like going, well, what, what should I do with my life? What kinds of things? And if you look at uh, the research out of social science, that they have six areas of primary gifting that show up uh, for both men and women, cultures around the world, they tend to last their whole lifetime, and there's six gifts that people tend to have inside of them. Uh, one of the gifts is, is a gift called realistic. If you can work with your hands, Physically, you can move things or manipulate things. That's a gift called realistic. Uh, investigative, if you're an academic type and you like to think and analyze, um, that's considered an investigative gift. It's in you. If you're creative and you're imaginative and you have that ability to kind of come into novel situations, that's categorized as an artistic gift. If you can build relationships where you're caring and where you're connecting, that's considered a social gift. Um, if you like to start things, businesses and leadership, that's classified as an enterprising gift. And if you're an organized person and you know how to start things and stop things and keep them in rows and the rest of that, that's a conventional organizational gift. Those are the six primary gifts. They show up, men and women, all cultures, all around the world, and they last over your lifetime. Um, now, where do they come from? Where does that ability What's the source of that? And I would say, although social science measures the existence, scripture tells us the source, the source of all gifts is God. The source, if you can work with your hands, you know why? It's because God dug his hands into the clay to shape man. He was the first workman. If you know how to think and analyze, you know why? Because wisdom was God's partner when he formed the world. If you're creative, you know why? Because God in heaven was the first artist. You're his workmanship. You're his poema to the world, right? If you're a social person, you know what? It's because we were born out of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were the original community. In Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. And if you know how to talk to people and care and connect, it's because that gift was in God. If you know how to start things, if you're an, an enterprising entrepreneur, you know what? Creation was the first startup. 
God was the first entrepreneur. There's a lot of guys in Silicon Valley that think they're major entrepreneurs. You go, guys, God has you beat. He spoke and created. He was the first entrepreneur. And if you know how to organize things, it's because the Holy Spirit hovered and separated light from darkness and land from sea. And you have that. Whatever God has put some of him in each of us, these are God's gifts in you for everybody else. We're, we're the depository, right? And Paul also puts in this list this gift of singleness. Where does the gift of singleness come from? And if we look before Genesis 1-1, the prequel to Genesis 1-1 is God existing in union with himself, in complete agreement, in complete wholeness. God was single within himself. He did not create you because he was lonely. He did not create you because he was needy. He created you and I out of love, out of fullness, out of joy, out of depth. God was single in himself and complete and alive. And the gift of singleness comes from that. It's not a need. It's not a completion. He was complete. That's the gift. And God says that, Paul says that, some people have different gifts. If you have the gift of singleness, then in that singleness, there is a satisfaction and there's a depth and there's an enjoyment and there's a capacity and you're not tortured that you're not married and you're not burdened. And I would say this, if you're currently single, it does not mean that you have the gift of singleness. Understand that. The fact that you may be currently single in your life state does not mean that you have the gift of being single. There is a gift of singleness. You may or may not have that, but if you're in a single state right now, then you go, that's the state that I'm in. And those two things are not necessarily identical. Does that make sense, right? There's the gift of singleness, there's the state of singleness. And um, in some people, those things travel together, and in other people, uh, you kind of go, you know what, uh, that's, uh, that's what you have. You're in the state of singleness. Now, um, Paul says that in the state of singleness, if you are unmarried, then he says, you know what? Uh, I would wish or hope that you would remain unmarried because there's a good in unmarried. Um, the word good uh, in Greek is the word kalos. Uh, and the word kalos has this really rich, deep, um, that Paul says there's a goodness in singleness, um, not an adequacy, not an okayness, but there's a goodness in the word kalos. Uh, here's some of the, some of what's contained in that definition, beautiful, approved, precious, honorable, praiseworthy, um, now, when you think about how singleness is sometimes recognized or reflected in culture, I don't know that those words are the first words that we pull up. Um, not, not just secular culture, but church culture, right? Is that fair? 
right? Most of our children's stories uh, are about two people that find each other. And once you get married and once you ride off, now you're entitled to happily ever after, right? That's kind of the story. That's kind of the progression. You, you, gotta, you gotta do that first part. You gotta get married. You gotta find that other person. And then once you find that other person, now you're entitled to your off into your future, amazing, you know, life together. Um, what culture and both inside the church and outside, they tend to really um, elevate and celebrate marriage. We elevate it and we celebrate it. And you know what? Marriage can be a really beautiful thing, but when we elevate it and celebrate it, um, and we, we have no response, we have no recognition, we carve out very little room or opportunity uh, for unmarried, I think we get a kind of a skewed, we get a cultural picture rather than a kingdom picture. And when it comes to singleness and marriage, most of us have more of a cultural lens than a kingdom lens. And we, we start to develop this idea that the goal of our life and the goal of our singleness is marriage. That's the goal, um, that you're single until you kind of cross over, like, right, single, you're, where you kind of go, hey, I'm on the JV single team. I'm hoping to make varsity, man, right? I'm an old guy <clears throat> and back before they understood fragile childhood egos, um, the way, the way all school stuff worked is you lined up against the fence and the team captains picked kids. I don't know if they still do that. Do they, any of you guys do that? <coughs> See, you, you did. Thank you. God bless you. I saw that hand. Yes. Um, it was kind of just a standard, standard, standard routine. You'd stand against the fence and the captains are picking people. And you are praying, dear God, let me not be the last person picked or be it down to the last two and the captains are arguing, right? Um, <clears throat> this was an early childhood trauma that most of you will have missed because we've realized how damaging that is and how expensive therapy is. But um, <clears throat> back in the day when that was considered just, you know, normal, healthy, fun play, there was a sense of going, man, I really want to get picked. I want to get picked early. And when you're standing against the fence and nobody has picked you, just this withering sense of going, I haven't been picked. I haven't been chosen. I'm not anybody's team. And I think sometimes uh, in our singleness, both within the church and out, we can kind of create a little bit of <clears throat> our lives are on pause until we really get married, until we find that one. And again, nothing wrong with celebrating two people who have this call of God in their lives and they're together and going, that's great. Um, but when you get married, we have a big event. When you stay single, we don't. When you get married, we celebrate an anniversary. Uh, when you're single, we don't. Uh, when you're together and you're kind of gathering, you kind of go, there's a way sometimes <clears throat> married people or families can cluster and group um, and other married people. Or if you're in a friend group and your friends start getting married off. Um, when I was in college, I had four roommates, they all got married. Um, so then I was the roommate without. So I found three other guys who had also had all their roommates get married off. And so, you know, we were kind of bachelors to the rapture guys. We we're just going, <clears throat> hey, 
<clears throat> we are the unmarried men <clears throat> of this generation. And uh, I think that happened one more time. And uh, so I was 30 before I got married. And so <clears throat> we had all seen a lot of other guys get married. And, you know, we were not. And there was a sense of kind of going, okay, uh, all right, we're eligible, I think, right? I mean, um, and I would say that the idea of if we miss the goodness, if we miss the depth, if we miss the beauty in that, um, then I think we can really um, start to get sideways. When I, <clears throat> when I married, or when Renee and I started dating, she was 31, she was a single woman. Um, and I will tell you that one of the things that I really appreciated about her was um, how great her life was and how intentional she was about making her life great. Um, she'd worked in the business field and really done some great, cool stuff in the business field, um, had some great adventures, some good opportunities. Uh, then she was working in a full-time ministry role and she was leading that. She had really great friends and she had a very fun um, lifestyle and she had a, a depth in her life and in her, the church that she went to. And <clears throat> I would tell you that when I met her, I go, wow, you know what? This woman does not need me. She's got a great life. She's got great friends. She is, she's pursuing the Lord. She doesn't need me. And I have to tell you, as a man, I found that really refreshing and attractive and interesting to go, wow, you're okay. You're, you're doing your life. This isn't coming out of a place of need. And, and I would say, if you're single, part of the work you do single in that state of life is work to make your life great. If we're working to make our single lives great and take advantage of that season in this state of life, that's much more productive if you're working to make your single life great than if you're dreaming about some potential future marriage. Dreaming about the satisfaction you might have in marriage will not make your single life great. It could also really contaminate if you ever are married. If you're piling up some expectations about it's okay, I don't like this, but once I'm married, you know, I, I really want this and once I'm married. Or if we're not living in the state that we're really living in, we're not gonna have great lives. And if you're in a state where you're single, then you kind of go, wow, I want to do the work of really having this be a satisfying and meaningful and, and, and deep. And people that do that, um, I think, get to take that health into whatever their relational future is. Um, but if you're comparing and you're contrasting, if you're operating on the, I'm JV, um, I'm not there yet, but I'm really hoping, I keep trying out and auditioning, but you know, uh, not very much happening. Uh, I watch The Bachelorette, though, every week, and I'm, you know, man, Bachelorette Nation, I'm uh, keeping my fingers crossed. And I would say, you know what? Living, living in the place that we are, um, uh, excuse me, is always a better strategy um, than imagining or thinking uh, where we might be. It doesn't set us up very well. If, if we can really develop and cultivate a sense of going, 
This is where God has me right now. And where God has me right now is good. It's beautiful and rich and precious and real. And I want to discover the goodness in it. I want to find the goodness in this season and the depth in this season. Um, Paul had the gift, he said himself, of singleness. Um, but here's what Paul did not have, and you and I don't have it either. Paul had the gift of singleness. He did not have the gift of contentment. Paul did not have the gift of contentment. Um, because God doesn't release contentment as a gift. Paul didn't have it. Uh, but here's what Paul does say in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Um, that's a pretty, I think, critical and bold statement that Paul said, this wasn't a gift that I received. God didn't deposit this in me. But he goes, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That includes all states of your life, single or married or divorced or kids or no kids or widowed, wherever you are on that spectrum of relationship. Paul says, there is a secret and I've learned the secret of contentment, right? Um, he developed the secret. He, he really kind of entered in the, uh, um, the, the word uh, secret in Greek um, has this really cool and specific idea that um, to learn a secret uh, it kind of means you have to personally like enter a mystery. It's really personal of how you get into a secret. Um, it's really intimate. Um, so there's a sense of vulnerability and availability in that, right? Um, and it really is experiential. It's a thing that you do. Paul said, I learned this secret of being content. I I practiced, I moved into it, and I've developed it. And he says, it's doable, um, but it's a thing that we learn. And I would say, whether you're single or whether you're married, learning to be content, whether you have kids or don't have kids, whether you have a job or not have a job, this idea of going, how do you learn to be content? Because according to Paul, um, that was a pretty significant part of what he was doing. He, um, I would say three, three practical things I think that uh, help us learn and help us develop. Um, one is if you're in a position where um, if you're not getting to know yourself better, um, if you're not getting more clear with your own heart and your own history and your own hopes, if that's not happening, 
um, it's going to be really hard to be content. Because here's the truth, you're never gonna be in a relationship that's healthier than you are. Amen? <laughs> you know why? Because you take you with you everywhere you go. You realize that, right? You go, oh, here I am again. Dang, I thought I left me back there. Here I am again. What the heck am I doing? Right? And we tend to think that because we get, you know, older and we, we kind of come out of these families of origin and we go, you know what? I'm good now. I've got straight teeth, a driver's license. I pay my own bills. I'm good. Like whatever happened in my life, that was a, that was a long time ago. I'm, I'm a clear, functioning, well-dressed adult. Look at me. Right? We tell ourselves that, um, and we kind of forget that we're the ones telling ourselves that, right? And I tend to believe myself when I tell myself things, right? Even if I'm making it up, even if it's not reality-based, I still believe it, right? To kind of go, so I kind of go, yeah. You know, I mean, I had, a, I had all kinds of messed up, broken things in my experience growing up in my family, <clears throat> but I met Christ later in high school, and then um, said, you know what, I'm okay now. I declared myself okay. But you know what, I wasn't okay. I just said I was. I just said that was a long time ago. It doesn't matter. But here's the truth. Our little timeline histories, um, they're not timelines. Your history is never behind you. Your history is always in you. You take it everywhere you go. It's not back there somewhere. You can leave your home. You can leave your family of origin. It's pretty easy to get out of your home. It's not as easy to get your home out of you. That's, a, that's, a, that's work. That's discovery. That's sitting down and kind of going, okay, wow, I've got to look at my heart. I've got to look at my history and my hopes. I've got to look at some of the hurts that have happened in my life. And I've got to be really honest before the Lord about that. Um, and I would say this, you don't have to deal with your history and your hurts, but understand they will deal with you. I promise you, they will deal with you. And so part of the idea of, of getting clear ourselves before the Lord to go, you know, David prayed, God, search me and show me my own brokenness. I can't see it. King David was a man after his own heart, but he said, I can't see the stuff that's in me because it's just always been in me. I don't even recognize it anymore. Um, when I was in graduate school, I lived south of ASU on College Street, and I moved in with a couple of guys. It was great, but I, I didn't know that about 25 trains a night, um, and we were just two houses north of the train tracks, came through between midnight and six in the morning. And so after a week, sleep deprived, I just go, guys, keep the month's rent. Seriously, I gotta find another place to live. They go, Wooster, just, just stay with us a little bit longer, you know? Um, and I had to, I'd already paid a month, I didn't find another place. So somewhere between like the 10th the day and the second week, somewhere in that window, I quit hearing the trains. They were still there. Um, but you know what? 
my brain kind of acclimated to them. And they go, oh, that's the 1230 trains. Keep sleeping. It's fine. Oh, that's the two o'clock, right? Not even aware. Didn't even wake me up, right? Um, because our, our brains do that. They acclimate to whatever is going on in your life. Your brain acclimates to it, and then it doesn't even really let you have awareness of it. Now, occasionally I have a friend come through town, and they would, you know, sp stay overnight, sleep on the couch. They would get up in the morning going, what the heck? Go, do you know what's the problem? They go, the trains. Why don't you tell me about all the trains? I didn't sleep at all last night. And I remember telling one, I go, oh man, I'm sorry, I, I forgot about that. He goes, how do you forget about that? I go, yeah. I go, you know what? He goes, how do you? I, I go, look, I'm sorry, I didn't hear him. He goes, how do you not hear that? You live here. I go, that's why I don't hear him. Because I live here. No one in this neighborhood can hear the trains because we live here. There's stuff in your life you can't hear or see anymore. You know why? Because you live with you. You don't hear some of the own trains. You don't hear some of your own attitude. You don't hear some of your own reaction because you're with you all the time. And so you lose awareness. We, we want to before the Lord and with, with healthy people in our lives go, show me who I am. Someone coming into your life can hear your trains. Get a roommate, get a coworker, get a good friend, go, can I tell you about your train? It's super obnoxious. I don't know if you realize it, but you get really snotty after nine o'clock at night. Really demanding, really needy. Yeah, maybe you quit hearing that. But here's the deal. We wanna keep getting clear. Uh, secondly, we wanna keep getting connected. We can't be healthy by ourselves in quality relationships kind of keep us honest, they keep us growing, they, they keep us connected. We're not supposed to figure it out alone, we're supposed to be with other people. And I hope you'll have some dangerous friends. Like social friends will just nod and wave and agree with you. Let me pray for you, uh oh Jesus, help them. That's a social friend, right? A dangerous friend will ask you hard questions about your life. Why do you think you're doing that? What do you think's going on there? Is there anything you're avoiding? Wow, it sounds like you're completely innocent. Are you really innocent? A dangerous friend loves you deeply and will ask you hard questions. A dangerous friend will go, what do you think Christ wants you to do about that? A dangerous friend will make you work harder and better. A dangerous friend will love you through all your brokenness and all the trauma and drama that just goes trying to figure out your life. Have some dangerous friends, they're better. They're also more, you'll be less comfortable, but you'll be better if you have some dangerous friends. And I would challenge you to be a dangerous friend. Don't just be nice to one another. Let's be healthy with one another. Jesus wasn't nice. I promise you, read the gospels. You don't crucify nice people. Jesus wasn't nice. He was healthy. He was full of grace and truth. That's not nice. That's healthy. We want to be healthy. So keep getting clear. Keep getting connected. Keep contributing. Um, there's two big bodies of water um, in, in Israel. Uh, one of them is, is, is the Sea of Galilee. It's fed by the Jordan River, and it's a huge commercial fishing operation. The Sea of Galilee has been commercially fished for three or 4,000 years. Uh, there's millions of pounds of tilapia that they're, they're still taking out, right? It's crazy. 
Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. Um, on the south end, it flows out and it flows 13 miles down to the Dead Sea. That body of water, the Sea of Galilee, is unbelievably productive. The Dead Sea uh, is where the Jordan flows into. The Dead Sea is dead, uh, right? It's got no outlet, so the water evaporates. It's six times saltier than the ocean. Everything in the Dead Sea is dead, and fish that swim into it die quickly. Those bodies of water are both fed by the same river. One of them has an outlet and has been vital and productive for thousands of years. The other one doesn't, and it's dead, and everything in it is dead and gets toxic. As soon as you and I lose our outlet, as soon as you quit pouring your life out, you'll start to get toxic. You'll get deep, but you'll get toxic. Don't, let, don't do that. Okay, um, okay. Last, uh, last verse I want to look at, and uh, uh, I want to make mention of. There's a, if we do all of this right, um, in Revelation 2, John talks about the church, and John says this, that, you know, in the church of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus had good theology, good morality, good behavior, good perseverance. I mean, if you read in Revelations 2, 1 to 5, the church, of, the church in Ephesus was amazing, but after all this behavior and, and morality and theology and everything else, he says, but I have this against you. Um, you've left your first love. If we do everything else right um, and we lose our first love, he says, if you lose your first love, nothing else matters. If we do everything else right and we lose our first love, all the other things we did get wiped away. Um, that first love is the essential. And that first love is, is the love that we have with Christ. Not with anything else, it's with Christ. If you and I lose our first love, um, then you know what? Being single won't be enough. If you lose your first love, being married won't be enough. If you lose your first love, your job won't be enough. Your friends won't be enough. If you lose your first love, this church won't be enough. The first love that God says, you know, you lost that. Repent and get back. And I would just leave you with this. I want to pray for us. How's your first love doing? If you're married, that's your second love. If you're single, how's your first love doing? Um, when we're animated by Christ, um, we can experience a contentment that comes from that. And uh, that is a contentment that doesn't fade. That's a contentment that's not fickle. Um, I want to pray for us. And, um, and then we're going to have the, the team come up and pray or worship for us. Jesus, um, you are the first love, God. You love us deeply and uh, with, a, with a passion and a tenderness and a grace and a mercy that's more than we can know or understand. So Jesus, um, could you help us sense, could you draw us, could you remind us of how deeply loved we are and that we could say yes and that we would say yes. Um, Lord, in whatever state we're in this morning, in a state of singleness, um, we're not single when we're connected to you. Lord, we are, uh, from the inside out, we want to know the depth, we want to know the intimacy, we want to know the fullness of a life with you. And God, in this single place, let us live out of the fullness. Let us live out of what's happening from the inside out in our lives Give us your vision, give us your grace, and give us your mercy, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.